This morning we will be looking at the center section of Luke, chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. The Gospel of Luke is, as you recall, written by the good doctor who serves as a wonderful historian, noting all sorts of details about what has happened, but also giving to us the teachings of our Lord so that we would know how to live. This is the very word of the living God. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient for faith and life. And it is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who is called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, Now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are now full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. As we live our lives and go from day to day and compare week to week, we have a a standard that we judge our circumstances and events by, don't we? We have to have something. And it's important that the standard be correct. Because after all, if we were to judge whether a day was good or bad against the standard of our wedding day or the birth of our child, 
every day would be a bad day. Conversely, if we were to judge every day by the standard of a day in which we were fired, or a day in which we had some catastrophic loss, then every day would be a good day. Standards are important. I learned this even in the way the world works in my former occupation as an attorney. I had opportunities to work with accountants and businessmen as transactions were were done. And one of the things that was very important in evaluating businesses and understanding profit and loss was to have the right kind of accounting. Everyone had to do the same form of accounting. There's actually an official name and acronym for it. You have to apply generally accepted accounting principles. GAP, for short. And it had common sense principles like when your company purchased something, you had to put it on the books for the cost you actually paid, not the market value that might fluctuate from month to month. You had to apply with consistency the principles that you did throughout all of the time of your business and from business to business. It just makes sense. We need consistent sets of principles in order to judge things really and rationally. This is true not just for the business world. It's true for you and me every day. The problem is, though, is that we have been lulled into accepting the principles that the world applies to our circumstances and events. There is a generally accepted view in the world of what makes a good day a good day, and a bad day a bad day. What makes a circumstance good or bad. And you see, in this text before us, Jesus is beginning to teach us that we must reorient our thinking, not in the way of generally accepted principles of the world, but we must view the world through the generally unaccepted principles of the kingdom. We must think kingdom thoughts. We must go forward thinking as Jesus would have us think. And this is unaccepted to the world, but it makes all the difference to the Christian. So in our text this morning, Jesus will show us three forms of unaccepted principles. First, he will show us unaccepted investments that we are to make. The kinds of investments that the world won't make or deems foolish. Secondly, we will see unaccepted assets that we have because our Lord tells us that we do. He tells us that certain things are a blessing and an asset to us that the world deems foolish. And then thirdly, we will see the unaccepted adjustments we must make to our lives as we respond to the providence that God has given to us. Unaccepted investments, unaccepted assets, and unaccepted adjustments that require us to think kingdom thoughts. Well, let's begin then by looking at how Jesus invests and how this is generally unaccepted to the world, but it is something that we need to orient ourselves to. Jesus, in verse 12, goes to the mountain to pray. Now, we have to understand that Jesus and his ministry have a purpose here. 
Perhaps you had wondered why Jesus came to the earth, took on flesh, and then lived a long period of time, 30 plus years, before he went to the cross. After all, isn't the important thing the atoning death of Jesus? Well, it is, but there is importance in the life of Jesus too. For several reasons. First, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to obey all of God's commands in thought, word, and deed. He came to be obedient where we are disobedient, to show us what man was created to be, to show us that the law is good and righteous and just. Secondly, Jesus came and lived a life in order to declare who he was. We see this even this morning in this text as he goes out not only teaching but healing and people see great power in what he does. The power is so evident that they run up and they think it's some sort of substance that flows out of him to them if they can just get a hold of it. That's the power of Jesus declaring who he is. But there's a third purpose and reason for Jesus living. It's so that He might show us how we are to live. He shows us how we are to view circumstances and providence. Shows us what we are to view as important. Shows us what our mission should be, even as we follow after Him. And this is a very large moment in Jesus' public ministry. It's about to enter into the next phase. He is beginning now to train others to succeed Him. He needs to be able to choose just the right disciples to be His apostles. You can appreciate that this would be a matter of great concern, of thought, and of work. We might think of it in this way. Many of us, as we go through our preparations and prepare legal documents and wills, we think about what will happen if something were to happen to us. Who will take care of our children? And so we we think of who would take care of our children upon our passing, and we give it thought and we write down who would get custody of our children. Now, could you imagine flipping a coin to see who that would be? Could you imagine throwing a dart at a dartboard? Or just saying, you know, it doesn't really matter. Who lives down the street? No, of course not. You would give it great thought, wouldn't you? It would be a matter for prayer. You would want to know the capabilities of someone. You would want to know that they were committed to the same things that you were committed to. It's a serious decision. Well, in a very real sense, this is what Jesus is doing. Because He is going to be training men who will be with Him for years, day and night, Sleeping and waking, eating, walking and resting. They are going to be His ambassadors. They are going to be separate from the disciples as a group. We see this even in the text. Jesus comes down and there is a great crowd of His disciples. And then even beyond that, there is a great multitude of others who wish to hear. But He needs to choose apostles. The apostles are ones who are sent out by Jesus as an ambassador. They are the ones who upon his death will lead and found the church. This word here is a very specific word. Don't let its familiarity to you hide that. Apostles 
is actually a very rare word. Outside of Luke, writing in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, it only occurs twice in your Bible. Once in Matthew's account of the calling of the twelve, and once in Mark's account of the calling of the twelve. But you see, Luke uses it here and throughout his writings to describe those whom Jesus has commissioned to take the church forward. So what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't make this decision in a vacuum, does he? We know he's been with Peter. He's watched Peter fish, or on some occasions, not fish so well. He's watched Matthew and seen what he's given up. He's seen James and John, and perhaps even watched James and John fight a little bit as the sons of thunder. He knows them, but he's not just concerned about their resume, is he? In order to make this very important decision, what he does is he sets himself apart from all distractions. Do you see this? He goes up to the mountain to pray. He wants to be with his father. This is an important decision. And so he begins then to pray all night, Luke tells us. And the language here is very vivid. What he did was he went and all night he continued in prayer. There's a very intense nature to this phrase. It is active. It is not the kind of praying that I dare say you and I do at times. Where we pray as we lie in bed and relax. Or we pray as we sit in an easy chair and our minds are distracted. And we think about something else and have to come back. No, this is a very active prayer that Jesus is doing. He is fervent in it. It is persevering energy. This is important because he is completely dependent upon the Father. He's asking the Father, striving in prayer, to know who these twelve apostles should be. Now, I think sometimes we miss this because we, we hide or we forget Jesus' humanity. We think to ourselves, well, Jesus has to pick twelve apostles. He can do this. He's Jesus. He knows everything. He's perfect. He's God. But what we have to remember and understand that Jesus is truly man, just like you and I are. He got hungry like we do. He got tired like we do. He had to learn math and history and English like we do. And so, he wants to make the right decision. The overarching principle of Jesus' life is for His will to be aligned with the Father's will. And so what does He do? Shock of shocks, He goes to the Father. And He prays that the Father would give Him His will so that He would make this decision the right way. Jesus was completely dependent upon the Father because He chose to be. Think about that for a moment. Not just because He was the Son of God, but also in His humanity because He chose to be dependent on the Father. Do you live your life that way? When you are faced with a large, monumental decision, do you separate yourself out from circumstances? Do you try and get a clear thought? Do you try and get yourself away from distractions, others that might influence you, things that might influence you? 
Do you fervently wrestle with the Lord in prayer and ask Him that His will would be done in your life, not just what you would want? You see, that's what Jesus is calling you to here. He's calling you to make an investment in prayer. To seek the Lord first and foremost, not our own thoughts, desires, or wills, but rather to seek after what God wants and what God desires. There's a second investment here that we see, and it is in the sovereign choice of God in the choosing of the apostles. Jesus goes and He prays all night. And again, we should not be surprised, but the Father answers His prayer. Do you expect answers to your prayer? Or do you simply think this is something that you must do? Because that's what good Christians do. We should pray. Do you actually expect God to answer your prayer in a powerful way? Jesus did. And God answers in such a powerful way that Jesus then comes down from the mountain and He acts. He chooses the twelve. He's empowered and equipped by the Father. His will is aligned with the Father. And then He acts upon it. You see, that's what prayer does. It empowers us to take action. It empowers us to move forward in the will of God. Now, how do we know that The Father answered Jesus' prayer. Jesus picks the twelve. We might even say, I'm not so sure that God did answer His prayer. After all, one of them was Judas. We know that the Father answered the prayer of Jesus because in John 17, Jesus tells the, the apostles, He prays that they were the fathers and that the Father gave them to Him. They were a gift from the Father. And it's interesting because this is not the group that one would choose. Think about it. There's virtually no diversity amongst this group of twelve. There are twelve of them. Eleven of them come from Galilee. The only one who doesn't is Judas. Think of how big the land of Israel is. From Dan to Beersheba. Think about all of the varying places and provinces and types of people and towns and villages. And Jesus picks all of them from one place. But at the same time, though there's no diversity geographically, it's not like there is a unity amongst them in the way they think and act. There are four fishermen. There's a tax collector. There's a political activist. There's a doubter. There's nothing really that keeps them together except that they are chosen by Jesus. None of them are well known. Where in the Bible do we read of any of these twelve before the Gospel accounts? Nowhere. Where in antiquity, in the histories, do we read of them? Nowhere. They're not well connected. They're not politically connected to any of the parties, the Sanhedrin. No. They are poor, they are unschooled, but they are Jesus' choice. You see, Jesus would have us think and invest in the sovereignty of God in our lives. There were many disciples. There were even more other people. 
But only these twelve were to be apostles. Even the choice of Judas was purposeful. If we were looking at resumes, we might look askance at Judas's. Well, let's see. His previous employer said he's known to be prone to greed, has an anger problem, betrays people. But how would that be much better than Peter? Foot-in-the-mouth disease. Thinks he can do things and then doubts himself. Or James and John. They do not play well with others. When they do not get their way, they try to kill people. You see, all of these things, all of these men were chosen for a very specific reason. And as we step back, we can see this. But the question that comes to us is, do we see this in our lives? Because you see, when bad things happen in our lives, when choices that seem to not make sense, like Judas, happen in our lives, what do we do? We throw up our arms and lift our eyes to the heavens and say, Oh Lord, why me? But there's a purpose for these things. These things that bother us, that come to us. We can't always see it. But we must invest our lives, our thoughts, in the sovereign purpose of God. That's what Jesus is saying. This choice seems foolish because... They're not equipped. They're not trained. But Jesus is the one who will train them. A lesson we learn from this is, is that today, this very day, you must stop trying to be equipped for Jesus. You must stop trying to be trained well enough for Jesus. He'll equip you. He'll train you. He is the one who is sovereign. Well, these are the unaccepted investments that the world does not want. But then there are also unaccepted assets that Jesus tells us we have. Now the training begins for this twelve after they have been chosen. He's beginning to show them how to serve others by preaching and teaching this great crowd. He reminds them of God's power. And now he is about to really focus upon them. You can see this here in verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and you can imagine, this is the uncomfortable moment when as the preacher preaches, he looks right at you. He's got you in his crosshairs. They know he's speaking. The others can hear, but Jesus is telling them something important. And he gives them an immediate challenge. It begins well enough. Blessed are you. Now, can you imagine? You're an apostle. I've just been chosen. I am blessed. Yes, I am. Praise the Lord, I'm blessed. Blessed are you who are poor. What? For yours is the kingdom of God. Wait a minute. Jesus, aren't your calculations off a bit? Blessed are me because I'm poor? That doesn't make sense. Everybody knows better than that. You could put up with poverty, can't you? But isn't God's blessing wealth? Isn't that exactly what many in the church outside will tell you? That if you really want to know if you have faith, that if you really want to know if God's blessing you, look at your bank account. What kind of car do you drive? 
Jesus says the opposite. That makes no sense. Who gets up in the morning and says, Woohoo, I'm poor. What father wants their child to walk up to them and say, Dad, I've decided what I'm going to do for a living. What, son? I think I'm going to be poor. Really? Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor. But why? Because yours is the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus' purpose here in this is to remind us that what we need, the assets that we should have, is not our stuff. You see, the richer we are, the more self-reliant we are. We lose stuff, what do we do? We replace it with other stuff we have. We're not really worried about the future because we've got a nest egg. We're not really worried about the car breaking down because we can get another one. The more we have, the less we need God. Jesus is reminding us of this. And isn't this the great challenge for the church? Isn't this why it is so dangerous to be an American? We have so much stuff, our stuff has stuff. But you see, the problem here and the warning that comes from Jesus happens in verse 24. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And the word, therefore, received is a word that was used in common business of the day. It was what you would stamp on a receipt, paid in full. You get nothing else. We're done. Let me ask you. Do you want the sum of your relationship with the Lord and the blessing from the Lord that you get to be the car that is out in the parking lot now rusting as we speak? Is that the end of all? Is the back deck that you put on your house all that you ever dreamed about for eternity? No. You see, Jesus is reorienting us He's telling us that we need to be focused on Him. We need to be dependent upon the Father, even as He is. And the more we worry about our stuff, the harder that is. There's a second thing that Jesus brings to us. As the apostles, you can imagine, are trying to clear their heads about, okay, He wants me to be poor. Now, blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. And then a corresponding woe in verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And we say to ourselves, why does Jesus want us to be hungry? But I think what's going on here is this is more than food and drink. Jesus is using that illustration because it's very real to us. But you see, he wants us to reorient our lives in the same way that the psalmist does in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. And in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, Jesus wants us not to be satisfied with life. He wants us to yearn for more of the Lord. To never be full and satisfied, but to be hungry for more. 
You know what that's like, don't you? When you've worked hard on a Saturday, perhaps so hard that you forgot to stop for lunch. Maybe you didn't even have breakfast because you thought you'd have lunch. And by the time supper time is coming around, you're starving. You almost can't think. And someone says, well, what should we have for supper? And you say, I don't care. Just a lot of it. Give it to me. And you punctuate it with a rumbling in your stomach. You see, that kind of hunger and thirst, a satisfaction, is what we need. There's an illustration that helps me think of this, about how we always want more, and we can't be satisfied. I have a good friend who uh, invites my family over for celebrations, and periodically, and one of them, they, there is this magical thing that she makes called cake balls. They're balls of cake. They're cake with chocolate around them, like candy. And so you go up and you, you grab one, and you think, this is good. It's all I need. I'll watch my figure. About five minutes later, you find someone and say, have you seen the cake balls? Let me take you over and we'll try a few. And you do that, and then you go away. And you think, well, there's three of them there left. They're looking lonely. Let, let me go. I'll have just a couple more. The way that that feels is the way we should seek after the Lord. Even at times when we think we're okay and we can handle this, we want to be drawn back to the Father. Knowing that we can't be well. We can't be satisfied. We can't ever say there's enough. But there's a promise that Jesus gives in the midst of this, doesn't it? He says, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst, for you will be satisfied. And that word for satisfied means filled. There's no more that you can take. Almost gorged. That's what will happen, won't it? In glory. We won't want more of God because we'll have all of God. We will have arrived. So blessed are you who hunger and thirst after the Lord, for you will be satisfied. The third thing that we see that Jesus lays out for us is an unaccepted adjustment to life. He's told us how we are to invest. He's told us what we are to view as our assets. And then he begins with another couplet of blessings. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then a corresponding woe. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, this seems the oddest so far, doesn't it? We can all think and understand perhaps the concept of the pious poor person. We can even think it's a good thing to hunger after something, to want more, to have that drive. But who likes to cry? Who thinks it's a good thing to weep? What's the blessing in that? Isn't the definition of weeping and crying a reaction to bad things? What does Jesus mean here? Now, I don't think what Jesus means here is that he wants us as Christians to be glum. He doesn't want us to go around in our lives having frowning contests to see who could be the most depressing and who could weep the most physically. No, I think 
What Jesus is, is he wants us to understand the reality of the world and to respond to it with kingdom eyes. Because you see, if we understand the world, it will cause us to weep. We don't like to weep, but who would think it was a good thing for someone to laugh at a funeral? Or to walk into a hospital ward and be all joyful and chipper and say, I'm so glad everyone here is healthy. You would look at them and you'd say, do you understand the reality of what this is? People are sick. They're dying. Why are you acting like that? But you see, that's what the world does for a living. We live in a world that is stained by sin. Where death hovers around every corner. Where disobedience and rebellion against the living God is the norm. And people walk around chipper, thinking life is getting better all the time. And Jesus says, don't fall for that trap. If you understand the world, and you understand the Lord, and you understand your place in it, you will weep. You'll weep for your own sin. You'll weep for the sin of others. You will weep for the lost. When was the last time you wept for the lost? Do you have an understanding of how long eternity is? One of the famous Puritans put it this way. He said, eternity is so long that if a bird came to a beach and every thousand years picked up one grain of sand and carried it off, there would eventually be an end to the beach. Not so with hell. It is never ending. It is beyond anything we can contemplate. And so if we understand that, will that not cause us to weep for our own sin? Will it not cause us to weep for the lost? To know that there is more than life at stake. This is what Jesus is doing. He is reorienting our way of thinking and the principles upon which we live our lives. But remember, this weeping is not without hope. For he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You see, there may be weeping in the night, but joy comes with the morning. You see, we have the promise of God that He is redeeming His people. And that if we trust Him and place our faith in Him, that there is joy that comes at the end. We are being prepared for the daily struggle of life by King Jesus to think on the world as He would have us think. There's a last unaccepted adjustment that we are called to make. And as difficult as the previous three are, this is perhaps the hardest to understand. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now imagine again that you're the apostles. You've just been hitting with three big body blows. Okay, I'm going to be poor. All right, Lord, I'm going to be hungry. Okay, I guess I can weep. And now he comes again. 
Blessed are you when people hate you. Ooh, that's bad. But that's a jab. Followed by a right cross. Followed by a left hook. Followed by an undercut. Think of that. Who wants to be hated and excluded and reviled and called evil? Right? Now, some of us look at this text and this becomes an excuse. We think that it's okay if we act and people don't like us because look, it's right there in the Bible. So, when I leave a really small tip at a restaurant, that's okay. I'm being hated for Jesus. When I cut someone off or am rude to someone, that's okay. I'm being hated for Jesus. It's part of what it means to be a Christian, right? Christian's supposed to be hated, ostracized, reviled. So I don't work that hard at work. And nobody likes me at work. Hey, it must be because I'm a Christian. No. If you are to be hated, if you are to be excluded, if you are to be reviled, if you are to be called evil, you know why you must be? On account of the Son of Man. Not for your short temper. Not for your rudeness. On account of the Son of Man. You see, that's enough, isn't it? No servant is above his master. And if Jesus was hated and excluded and reviled and called evil, how can we expect not to be? You see, this blessing comes to us because... It lets us know we are being made more and more like Jesus. So when someone ostracizes you and tells you you're not welcome, when someone looks askance at you and tells you you're not worthy, it's because you bear the family resemblance. You see, how much more we love to be popular How much more we love to have people love us. But you see, Jesus says, those people have their reward. You can fool not only some of the people some of the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time. And what Jesus says here is, we are not to seek after the the praise of the world and others. We're to seek after the Father. So the question then comes to us. Are you willing to risk all for Jesus? Are you willing to invest in your life as Jesus asks you to invest? Not as you think will provide the best return. Are you willing to count as your assets, your blessings, the things Jesus tells you are your assets and blessings? And not what you desire and want. Are you willing to adjust your life according to kingdom principles? Not what is most beneficial for you. You see, this is what the gospel of grace is. It is a radical changing of who we are. It is a reorienting of who we are along the lines of the kingdom. Following the king. The only way to do that is to apply and seek for and love the principles of the kingdom 
that are so unaccepted in the world around us. If we do that, people will see the difference. They will see the glory of God in the church of God. It begins with you and with me today as we seek the principles of the kingdom. Let's pray.